Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we do come now longing to hear from your word, longing to hear your words. Father, we pray that we would have open ears and open hearts to receive uh, what it means to be people of the book, what it means to be people of your word. We pray we would be people that never soften what your word says. We pray tonight we would be charged to do just that from the gospel, that we can have a righteousness greater than anyone, greater than any standard of righteousness and self-righteousness because it comes from the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. So I pray we would hear the word, the word, your words would be spoken through me, that we would just all reflect on the gospel this evening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do you eat bacon? That was a question I received in high school, actually. I was talking with a friend of mine. We were engaged in sort of a good faith debate over, actually, the issue of gay marriage. Uh, She and I disagreed on the moral and abiding principle of traditional marriage. I argued that it was clear from God's word and God's commands of what marriage was, that he defines it to be between man and woman and that he commands it only to be man and woman. And then she responded, well, why do you eat bacon? Maybe you don't know, but in Leviticus 11, in God's law to Israel, he actually forbids the eating of pork and other things, so, so why would I, someone arguing this issue, why would I observe the laws of God that pertain to marriage and not food laws? At the time, I didn't have a great answer. I do believe, though, there is a good answer that comes from Scripture and from sound reason that Christians have actually been parsing out over the last 2,000 years. Texts like ours tonight have been reasons for uh, how the law is abiding on us today, but In what way does the law live and abide for us in the year 2023? Jesus said very plainly he didn't come to destroy it. He says very plainly in our text we're supposed to teach it to the very last day until heaven and earth pass away. So how do we teach it? How do we handle it? What do we teach about it? This has been an issue since even the time of the New Testament. In Acts and in Paul's letters, wrestling over what about the law is binding to this day. And now, 2,000 years later, we have some neat kind of distinctions that we have drawn as Christians, especially as evangelicals, that the Old Testament law can be seen in sort of three ways, in three phases or three divisions of it. The civil law, you have the ceremonial law, and you have the moral law. The civil law for Old Testament Israel, seen in those first five books of the Bible in God's law, would be equivalent to our seatbelt laws, that they were given commands from God for actually the way that they were supposed to do life as a theocracy, that God was their government, this was their system of government. They had come out of slavery in Egypt, they were headed into the promised land, and so God gave them laws to govern them in a civil way. But those laws do not seem to be binding to us as even in the New Testament when they're under Roman occupation, no longer a theocracy under God's law. They don't follow these laws. They follow the law of the land, which would be the Roman law. Jesus himself followed these laws and told us to do so. Now, the ceremonial law would be those laws of sacrifice or even food choice or food uh, regulations, that these were given by God for religious observance 
so that the people of Israel would look like a set-apart people from the rest of the world. And then in the New Testament, passages like Mark 7, verse 19, Acts 10, 15, you see that as Jesus was working out this fulfilling of the law, he helps his disciples to understand that he being the ultimate sacrifice, food laws, the ceremonial laws pertaining to what animals are clean or unclean, uh, no longer abide. Mark 7, 19, he said these things and he made all foods clean. The writer of Hebrews says that sacrifices, the sacrificial system, was a shadow pointing to the true sacrifice. That would be Jesus. Now that third category, civil, ceremonial, and moral, this moral laws are the ones that have been understood throughout history to be living and abiding today, just as they were uh, for Israel. Laws like the Ten Commandments, a moral principle still binding on the Christian. Unlike civil or ceremonial, we are still under these moral laws. In fact, Jesus teaches the moral law. He actually teaches a deeper meaning to the moral law and the deeper application of it in the next six paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount, commonly referred to as the six antitheses. He says a phrase like, you have heard it said this, or you have heard that it was taught this, refuting a misunderstanding of the actual principle behind the moral law, such as adultery or even murder. Our passage tonight this section before the six antitheses, Jesus is being accused of just disregarding the law entirely. Because he taught it different than the religious leaders of the time, they were worried that he was just throwing the law out, throwing it out, regarding it not. But he says very plainly, I've not come to abolish it, I've come instead to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and in being the fulfillment, he fulfills it by having the authority to teach exactly what the law means and by obeying it perfectly. He fulfills the law, and as you see in our passage, he commands us, his followers, to teach all of its commands to the fullest extent. And when they do, his followers teach, they will be given a reward in heaven. We must ourselves be ready tonight from this word to teach God's commands, to teach his words to the fullest extent, because his word alone has the message of salvation. Very clearly, he has not come to abolish or destroy it, he says right from the jump, which leads me to my first of three questions this evening. So he's not come to destroy it, he's come to fulfill it, which makes us to ask, how is it that Jesus fulfills the law? Look with me at verse 17. How does Jesus fulfill the law? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Right here, the beginning of the body of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to explain how it is that we be salt and light, how it is that we let our light shine. One of those ways is by living righteously, by understanding God's law and living it out and commanding others to do likewise. We as God people, we let our light shine when we understand what his word says, that he is the fulfillment of it, and then he will unpack that, as we said in the next six paragraphs. Many at the time thought Jesus was refuting the Old Testament because in their tradition, the religious leader's interpretation of the Old Testament was akin to its authority. They had the authority to understand and interpret it in their tradition. And when Jesus comes around and he interprets it slightly different or entirely different, they see that as an attack on the Old Testament itself. So when Jesus teaches different than what is understood at the time, the common understanding, or we would say misunderstanding, they say he is abolishing the law. And he says very plainly, before anybody can raise the objection, don't think I've come to abolish the law. Which really, maybe your translation says it this way, could be strongly put, don't even entertain the thought. Don't think for a second 
that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He rejects the premise entirely. And it seems the primary problem here is the law. Law and prophets. Throughout the New Testament, that is a common way to refer to the Old Testament. Sort of a summary statement. See that in other passages like Luke 24, law and prophets. What they would refer to as the Hebrew Bible in many cases at this time. And he says law or prophets. And I think most people think that or is significant. To show it's one or the other in particular. He hasn't come to abolish either one of them. And many people think this is supposed to point significance to the law. And then you just read the rest of our passage and you see he mentions the law further on in our passage. They had a particular problem with his relationship to the law. Not so much the prophets. They were waiting for a Messiah. They had prophecy in their Hebrew Bible of Messiah. They weren't so worried about Jesus and his relationship to the prophets. They were worried about his teaching and the way he would teach related to the law. Because it wasn't how he taught. or It wasn't how they taught in relation to the law. Jesus saw the moral law abiding for his people and he taught it. In fact, he taught it deeper than they were teaching it, that it had deeper meanings as we will dive as you continue through the Sermon on the Mount. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill them, both the law and the prophets. Fulfill, a word Matthew uses about 16 times, 12 of which directly relating to and actually quoting an Old Testament passage throughout his gospel. Just a few Isaiah 7:14, he quotes and says fulfill in Matthew 1:22. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, he quotes and says fulfills in Matthew 2:6. Isaiah 43, Matthew 3:3, 3, 3. Isaiah 53:4, Matthew 8:17, Exodus 23:20, 20, Matthew 11:10, Zechariah 17 13:7 and Matthew 27:9 and and throughout Matthew's gospel. Matthew wants to make the point these Old Testament prophets that we've been reading, that they've been talking about, this is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And most of this time would not necessarily have had a problem with that right at the jump. They were anticipating a Messiah. But then the Messiah comes around and he starts teaching that this law is abiding right now in a deeper way than you've ever understood, and they start to get concerned. When he teaches true what the law truly means, like an example with the Sabbath, you know the story of Jesus and the Lord of the Sabbath, he is wandering with his men. They pluck some grains. People have problems with that. He goes on and he heals a man on the Sabbath. And, and they have a problem with this, the religious leaders, and he gets to the heart of it. They want to use the letter of the Sabbath law that they're supposed to rest to not do good to their neighbor, to not provide mercy for those who need mercy. And Jesus makes it very clear this is a deeper abiding moral law in this Sabbath that you can do mercy on the Sabbath. That's the deeper beyond the letter of the law. They wanted to couch themselves in this letter of the law and not fulfill its deeper meaning. So Jesus fulfills the law by teaching its true meaning, as he will do in the Sermon on the Mount. He also fulfills the law by living it out perfectly. Paul said in Romans 3.20 that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law, because you and I don't live up to God's righteous standards, we have the knowledge of sin, that we have sinned against God, fallen short of his standard. We have rebelled against his laws. We have rebelled against his righteous rules, each one of us. Each person on the earth has done this. And the law brings about this knowledge. But Jesus fulfills the law because he never broke those righteous standards. 
because Jesus lived perfectly, whereas you and I have lived very imperfectly. Jesus lived up to the standard of every single one of God's laws, never breaking them, whereas each one of us has broken them. You take just the Ten Commandments. You and I have stolen things. You and I have each not honored our mother and father. You and I have each lied. Jesus never did those things. He obeyed the law perfectly. He fulfills the law because he teaches what it truly means for his people and because he lives it out fully for his people. That you and I can look on Jesus as the spotless lamb, the lamb slain before God to atone for our sins because he had no sin himself, made him who knew no sin to be our sin, so that we would get his righteousness. That perfect record that Jesus stands before God the Father with as never having sinned against him, never having broken his law, perfectly fulfilling his law, we get by faith in him. He dies never having sinned so that you and I could have that record. We have sinned. We have broken God's righteous law, and Jesus never did. And he dies in our place. He fulfills it by being perfectly obedient to the T. He fulfills it in his words by teaching it. He fulfills it in his actions by living it. He taught it perfectly. He lived it perfectly. He never disobeyed. He never taught it falsely. He did not come to destroy or abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he commands his followers to obey it and teach it, which leads me to my second question. How are we to teach the law? Look with me at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus did not come to abolish the law. And he teaches now, the law's not going anywhere. He wants to make the point very clear, I've come not to destroy it, but to fulfill it, so much so it's not going anywhere. He uses that signature phrase, truly I say to you. This was akin to thus says the Lord. This is a phrase Matthew records 31 times that Jesus has said. John, with that extra truly, truly, says it about 25 times. Jesus, this is a famous phrase of his, to get a point across. I have not come to destroy it. It is not going anywhere. It's not going to be invalid. It's not going to go anywhere until heaven and earth pass away, says Jesus. Heaven here is probably a reference to sky, like the creation above us, more so than just the heavens. Jesus is looking forward to that day when the new earth and the new heavens are consummated as that being the, the, the actual day that this moral law is no longer abiding in the same way. Of course, that will be because we are with our Father, with our Savior, in our new perfect selves. And he's very emphatic. He wants to make the point this law isn't going anywhere. Not even an iota or a dot. These would be the smallest letters of the Greek, the iota, and the smallest letter of the Hebrew. At this time, they would have had a Greek copy of the Old Testament. It was called the Septuagint. They would have had a Hebrew copy of the Old Testament. They, both sides of the coin. Your Greek translation, your Hebrew translation, not the smallest letter of your Hebrew Bibles, of your law, is going to pass away. Not the smallest word, not the smallest phrase, not the smallest command, not the smallest letter of this moral law that we are to abide by is going anywhere. 
until this thing is all wrapped up, until all the promises of heaven and earth come in its fulfillment, until the very last moments of all of this time when the Bible are fi- when the Bible's finally fulfilled, when Jesus finally returns for his people, the law is important for you and for me. He tells us to obey it. He says in verse 19, his followers are not to compromise a single one of these iotas or dots. He says, whoever relaxes the least commandment and teaches others to do so will be called the least in heaven. And then he says, whoever obeys and teaches these least commandments will be called great. The rabbis at this time, they had a division of law. They would divide it up between what they would think is light and what they would think is weighty. So you would enforce the light laws, Eh, maybe not, but you would enforce those weighty laws. Jesus is making a play on this sort of language, this idea of the religious leaders. God will have no shadow of a doubt. He will know for certain who it is that compromises on his word. That's what Jesus wants us to get across. Those who do not compromise on his word, teach his commandments fully, he will know in the judgment. And he will know who has compromised and fallen and softened his word. He will know which of his people, which of us, has softened his word in order to win points with the culture, softened and relaxed on his moral law and taught others to do so. He will know who those people are. He teaches there's sort of a category here of a Christian who relaxes on these words, makes it to heaven, and ought not have done so. You and I will be tempted in this world that we live in to relax on these commandments. Jesus is talking, in a sense, right to us. We have just come out of a month where the culture has been wanting us to run away from the clear commands of God, the living and abiding moral principles of the law. And many Christians from this month and from the rest of the days will soften and relax and head in that direction so as to appease the people. Right now, people, Christians, and the culture are trying to determine what they think is light and weighty, what they think is in least and great command, and what they want to soften for you and what they want you and I to soften and back away from teaching. This is the pull of the culture you and I live in right now. People don't like the biblical definition of marriage, right? They want you and I to relax on that, or the biblical definition of gender, and they want us to soften on this and make it a least commandment that we soften and relax and do not teach. You will be tempted in this culture, in this world, in work or in friendships to soften the commands of God, the living and abiding moral law. Preachers like myself will be tempted to stand in pulpits and soften God's word for itching ears to hear. There may be a day in this part of this, parts of this country, there are days like this all over the world every single day where preachers are told uh, if they hold a Sunday service or if they say that thing in that Sunday service, if they hold to the truths of the Bible, it will cost them their freedom. They will be in prison. That may happen in this part of the world. It may happen in other parts of this country. Parents, you will be tempted uniquely to do this with your children, whether your children are hear things in the culture or whether your children naturally sort of pull away before they come to know Christ, you will be tempted to relax on God's commandments and make them feel better. You will love your kids so much that when they are doing what is wrong against God, you will actually feel in yourself a pull to soften what God's word says. And there are no shortage of YouTube theologians to tell you these things. 
so that your, make your kids feel better and, love, and that they will love you more. This will be a temptation for you parents. This will be a temptation for you and I just in the workforce, just you and I living in the culture. This will be a temptation for you parents in that pull of things like sports. We've seen that battle, but now it will happen right before you, even with your kids, with things like gender and sexuality. Christian, you will be tempted to soften and relax on God's word so that others will like you, so that others will feel better about the things that you're saying. Paul called those itching ears, and you and I will be tempted to speak to those itching ears and give them what they want to hear by softening God's word, by lessening his commandments so that they would like us. You and I cannot do that. You and I must stand by the Lord's word. We cannot back down from what God says about right and wrong. Don't think for a second that your compromise will win people over to your side. We all you know, watch the way we teach God's word, what we believe about God's words, and what we do with the commandments of God's word. Because his commands are true, because his commands are good, and they are life-giving, and they are not burdensome, as he says. But they're at the very heart of what this whole thing is really about, this whole thing of righteousness, this whole thing of salt and light. This whole thing of what this Sermon on the Mount is really about, which is my third question, what is this all about? What really is all this thing wrapped up in, even this text tonight? Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The meaning of this verse is very clear. And some people are perplexed by it. It does find an odd timing, it might seem, being right here. Maybe if it had come at the salt and light passage, it'd make more sense. But Jesus says, these scribes and Pharisees who appear to be so righteous, and they were so righteous and self-righteously in their Judaism, and they looked very good. These scribes and Pharisees who look very righteous and act very righteous and are the righteous of the righteous, unless you have a better righteousness, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. This would have been a bombshell, kind of a rhetorical thing that would have perked all the ears. What is he saying right now? These are the scribes and Pharisees. They've been training for this since they were born. They've been well-versed in the Hebrew Bible since before I was born or before I ever learned how to read, if I know how to read. But I think this is a callback to Matthew 5, 6, so one of the Beatitudes. So just look, probably a few lines up in your Bible. Matthew 5, 6. One of these Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A Christian is someone who comes to God knowing they are themselves not righteous. They bring nothing to the table. I saw a famous quote shared on Facebook by one of us recently that the only thing you bring to the table in your salvation is the sin for which you are guilty of. That's all you and I bring before God. We bring no righteousness of our own. But if we hunger and thirst for it, if we declare to the Lord, I need righteousness from you, I need a righteousness that comes only from the source of good things. I need a righteousness from Christ, who is that spotless lamb who perfectly fulfilled God's word, they shall be satisfied. And so he's extending that argument here. You must teach and obey the commands of God to the fullest extent, and then he caps it off, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But, of course, your, your righteousness can exceed the scribes and the Pharisees if you believe on the Lord Jesus. 
if you hunger and thirst for it, you shall be filled. How do you get to heaven? Hunger and thirst for that righteousness. How do you be salt and light to the world when you know you're just a mere man or just a mere woman? By hungering and thirsting for that righteousness, you shall be filled. How do you teach and help others to, how do you obey and teach others to obey the fullest extent of all of God's commands, all of the moral law? How do you teach these things? Hungering and thirsting for a better righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees were very self-righteousness. They had a whole bunch of self-righteousness. The righteous of the righteous. And by faith in Christ, his people right before him, his people now in the year 2023 can have a better righteousness. A righteousness that comes from Christ himself. Why do you eat bacon? It's delicious. But because Jesus is the fulfillment of this law. Jesus fulfills this law by living it out perfectly, giving us the perfect understanding of it, helping us and empowering us to obey and teach others to obey. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And because he is the fulfillment of the law, you and I can have that better righteousness. That righteousness that empowers us to observe and obey every command of the Lord. That righteousness that gives us the Holy Spirit. By faith, forgiven of our sins, and then sealed with the Holy Spirit to live and obey. Buried as he was buried, raised to walk in newness of life. Following all of his commands because they are good. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. And they will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths of this word that Jesus Christ is the source of that better righteousness. We thank you that your word is never-ending, never-failing, perfect, abiding, every word of it true. Father, we, play, we pray that we would try uh, to our best efforts to obey it perfectly. Father, we pray, though, that we know we have the one who has obeyed all of it and fulfilled perfectly, that we can have righteousness in the man Jesus Christ. I pray we would go from this place filled with your spirit to obey so that we might be salt and light to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.